Hello there, friends. Lisa here, host of this podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. If you tuned in to my last episode, you probably heard me tell you about some incredible guys I met recently who have combined their heart, frankly, and their talents to create something really special. TJ and Julian, co-creators of GiftPod, have created an easy but beautiful way to help us capture memories by creating audio memories in the form of a private podcast. With their thoughtful guidance, they help every single customer capture and share their most important memories. In the end, you get a time capsule that you, your friends, your family can return to over and over again. You can see why I love their work and why I was so excited when they asked to partner with me to support this show. They love what we're doing here at Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, so much so that they created a special discount code just for my listeners. How cool is that? Visit giveagiftpod.com, and when you check out, enter GSB10. And while you're there, tell them I said hi. Yeah, and a phrase that I learned recently from the Instagrammer Maya Richardson is self-gaslighting. And something that we do in grief, because gaslighting is when somebody uh, tells you stories about your emotional state or um, what's gone on in your life to, exactly, um, to force you to... um, to contradict yourself or feel like maybe you have the wrong story or like it causes a distrust of the self Um, but there's such a thing too as self-gaslighting where we try to talk ourselves out of our own emotions and so we feel like we can't trust what's coming up for us like other people have it so much worse so I'm not allowed to grieve or I'm only allowed to grieve if it meets this criteria or um, other people's brains don't act like this so I'm not allowed to act like this as if as if somehow you have all of that information and it's true and so you gaslight yourself and to not trusting the emotions that are coming up, which feeds into that suppressing of anger. And when we suppress anger, we suppress the self. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. And through this show and my work at Reimagining Grief, I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief, one conversation at a time. In today's episode, I am bringing you a conversation I had with Shelby Forsythia, While for many college years can be full of new beginnings and exciting times, for Shelby, they became what she describes now as her four years of hell. While I'll let her tell you about the details, what I want to tell you now is how much I appreciate the way she peels back all of the secondary losses so many of us experience beyond death loss, and yet we just don't talk about it. She has taken what she's learned from her own healing and transformed it into her own unique offerings of grief support, including her own podcast and authoring two books. I can't wait for you to meet her and learn from her, just like I did. Hi, my name is Shelby Forsythia. I am the podcast host of Coming Back Conversations on Life After Loss and the author of Permission to Grieve and another book soon to be released called Your Grief, Your Way. Shelby, thank you so much for joining me today on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. It is such a pleasure to have you here. I'm so excited to be here because I just love the name of your show. It made me laugh the first time I saw it and I was like, I got to get on this podcast. <laughs> It definitely has a way of um, igniting people. It has kind of a sense reaction. People have a embodied re- 
reaction to the name. And, and I would say 99% of the time, it's an affirming, nodding yes. And, you know, there's the one percenters out there who maybe don't get it, but I'm glad it resonated for you. Oh, definitely. I'm a person for whom uh, grief is a swear word worthy experience. And so I'm definitely in that 99% camp of, oh, hell yeah, that makes perfect sense to my brain. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, then you're the perfect customer for my empathy. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, well, you know, hopefully, because you've lif- listened to the show before that I always start these conversations, asking people to share a little bit about their earliest memory of grief in their growing up life, and how the adults in your life modeled grief, what were they expressing emotions, what emotions, what messages were being said or not said, and how you think that shaped um, your own experience of grief, either in a healthy or unhealthy ways as the years have gone on. Can you share a little bit about your early memories? Yeah, I don't know if I've ever rooted this up before, but um, my earliest experience with loss was not a grief that I myself really faced. It was the death of my grandfather, but he was a person that our family saw maybe once or twice a year, not very often, um, but it was my mother's father. And I remember uh, at our house climbing the stairs to bed the day she'd received the news and my parents' door being shut and hearing my mom cry behind a closed door and not knowing what to do about it or if there was anything I should do about it. Um, And also this fact too, that I don't know up to that point that I'd ever seen my mother cry or heard my mother cry. And so Mm -hmm. to have that experience, but not be able to, to look at her, be next to her, is something I remember. There's there's like a disconnection that happens when the door is in the way. Um, yeah. And I think in that moment, I, I was trained as a grief recovery specialist under the grief recovery method, and they teach the six big grief myths. And one that westernized society teaches big time is grieve alone mm-hmm. and to, to keep your grief secluded behind closed doors. And when I learned that for the first time, that was the the memory that came forward. But yeah, so my first experience of grief was hearing it in a place that was inaccessible to me. Mm. And I can imagine so many people who are listening right now, Shelby, are sort of nodding their head in affirmation that that was their experience too. Um, We definitely are taught in our culture that grief is in some ways shameful or private or not the domain of um, even family display, let alone sort of public or community display. so I, that's part of the reason I do the work I do. And I know I can imagine it's why you write and do the work that you do as well is really understanding then the harm that that experience had in terms of then all the shoulds and the guilt and the repression and the everything that sort of it comes as a result of that um, silencing. Yeah, the stories we tell ourselves. And oftentimes we don't even realize that they're informed by what we've seen before, whether through our families or through books or TV or the movies or yeah. radio programs. Um, but yeah, we are, we are influenced by what we think grief is supposed to look like. And then it happens to us. And oftentimes it looks a whole other way. Right. And then the harm, and that's why I was sort of talk about the unnecessary harm, is that we then begin to question our own reactions because they don't, we've never seen what, you know, real grief looks and feels and displays like. And so we then pile on the shoulds 
um, that sort of get in the way of us doing the necessary work of grief. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So that's sort of the backdrop to sort of how you came early into the world to understand grief and, and maybe not arguably, maybe not in the, in the healthiest way. How did that shape how you came to experience grief uh, around the loss of your mother? And tell us a little bit about that story and, and what you yeah. want to share today. Well, to kind of compress it, um, my grief experience is kind of all lumped into what I like to call the four years of hell. And it was the four years that I was in college, um, and it contained a lot of grief, not just the death of my mother, but that was kind of, for lack of better phrasing, the icing on the cake. It was the last grief that happened in the four years of hell, and it was the biggest. Um it, it started off with my father losing his job, which was um, a source of major instability for our family. And then shortly after, he was diagnosed with two uh, brain aneurysms, one on either side of his head. And watching him struggle with the decision to have the surgery or not have the surgery, I, I literally watched him struggle with the decision of whether or not to have them cut his brain open or to just die and let this be the way that he died mm. um, was very scary. And then of course he, he did eventually go through with the surgery, but to watch him become a different person, because when doctors go digging around in your brain, you inevitably become a different person, at least for a while um, was bizarre. Uh, I came out of the closet to a family in the South and North Carolina that was not mm. wholly receptive um, developed an eating disorder in that period of time as well. And then as soon as my dad's surgeries were finished and he got a clean bill of health, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And in about a year, a year and a half or so, um, in a year, the cancer, she was declared cancer free and she went into remission. And then 11 months later, it came back and she died in a week. And so for it to happened so so to just be marinating in grief for for four years of my life and not even know that I should be calling it grief I didn't have a name for it I just thought I was anxious and and um unable to juggle all the balls that had been tossed at me into the air um it's funny even now the story I told myself then was one of I'm incapable as opposed to I have been overwhelmed by external circumstances um so I, drawing on this experience of hearing my mom cry behind a closed door is like, oh, my, my grief doesn't belong in the public space. My grief doesn't belong with other people. Um, mm-hmm. And the only grief expression I really knew was sadness. And when my mom died, I was angry. I was full of rage for the experience that that was, partially because I felt like I'd been beaten up over and over and over again for the past four years. Um, but partially too, with the story surrounding her death is that she never accepted my sexuality as a person, as a queer woman. Um, and so for her to die while we were in the middle of a fight was really traumatic for me as well. And so I was looking around and doing this thing that grievers often do, which is compare themselves to everybody else in their family or friend group that's grieving. And right. I was like, screw you all. You all just get to be sad. I'm the only one here who's pissed. And so I thought something was really just like effed up within me that I could not release the anger that I had both for her death and just the um, experience of not feeling loved or accepted by her before she died. And I was 21 years old. There was a lot going on in there. Um, I was trying to figure out how to be an adult for the first time. I was trying to figure out how to date, form relationships. It was my last semester of college, uh, which I went back to 
after she died. And so figuring out how to jump into the world and get a career and, and build a life for myself after all of that happened, I literally felt like every single day I woke up and someone pulled the rug out from under me. I had no ground to stand on. And I didn't even know how to go about building it myself, or even if that was a skill or an ability that I had. Um, so yeah, a, a lot of Toxic compounding, yeah. well, compounding loss is really what you're talking about, right? A One after the other. Percent. Yeah, yes, yeah. a thousand percent. And losses, as you said, I'm so glad you shared that. And even the fact that you didn't have the language at the time to name it as grief and loss, because I think what you're describing is what so many people have and don't name because we've been so um, trained to think about grief being of the domain of death. Correct. Yes. Well, and one story that I come back to over and over again is there was this dollar movie theater on campus and I was there one night with my friends and my parents both insisted that I continue to stay in college while each of them was sick. So while my dad was having brain surgeries and while my mom was uh, going through radiation and chemo and surgery, but they said they would always call if anything was wrong. And so I didn't know, again, I didn't have terminology for this, but I developed panic attacks every time the phone rang. And I remember sitting in this movie theater with my friends and my phone starts by in my pocket and I take it out um, and the picture of my parents popped up and I was like, oh shit. And so I booked it for the back of the theater. I immediately started having a panic attack. I was heaving. I was leaning on this railing. I answered the phone. I was like, hello, what's wrong? And they were like, oh, well, we just wanted to call and catch up with you. And it was this, oh my God, I was so frustrated and so agonized. And my friends came rushing out after me and I was like, it's a false alarm. I can't believe I just did that. And then I felt really stupid for having had that response to something as neutral as the phone ringing, but it was not, it was no longer a neutral stimulus because I could have picked up and somebody could have died. And even then I didn't classify it as, oh, I'm having panic attacks. Oh my God, I'm grieving. So yeah, to even look back now, all kinds of perspectives on what I actually faced versus what I thought I was facing. Shelby to reflect on how she felt supported or not by her friends in college. Given this is usually a time for freedom and frivolity, she understandably shared that not everyone was capable of holding the heaviness of her grief. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Um, I think I had both sides of the experience. I think I had okay. friends who, I mean, I had friends I told. People knew yes. what was going on in my life. Cause, but being, have, partially because I'm an extrovert. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I have to tell people what's happening. Um, yes, um, but, but people would respond very differently, I think, based on what they knew about grief. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did have, when I would get these phone calls, sometimes my roommates especially were brilliant about rushing into the room and kind of holding me until I stopped crying, which was wonderful. And even the dog would come in and like lick my hand <laughs> until I was done crying. Um, and then I had other friends. I mean, we were in our 19, 20, 21s. Yes. And people were like, why don't you just come to the party? Drink it off. Or, you know, come forget about it with us and smoke some pot or, or something like Whatever, that. And they were yeah. kind of offering a distraction or offering some kind of numbing agent to be like, well, that's no fun. Come join us at this thing. And so it was really interesting getting both sides of that experience. And something that I've noticed, especially doing interviews for for my podcast and coming back is there are a lot of people that face grief in their twenties and colleges don't do a hell of a lot about it to, um, to normalize the experience, to welcome it on campus. And I think a lot of professors and even administrators in college campuses don't know that their kids are grieving. Right. And then our pathologizing behaviors as a result. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I think the same thing is true in the corporate space. I mean, I go into companies and do education and sort of advise on policies around grief and loss because, I mean, you spend what, you know, the majority of your waking hours at work. And it's not as if you don't bring your whole self to work. So I think we, and again, that goes back to sort of what you said, which is grief alone. You know, it compounds. That means when you show up as college at college, professors and systems don't see that possibility or that part of you. Companies don't see it when you become their employee, you know. Right. Well, and I think too, there's this societal myth that somehow grief can be compartmentalized, that it's possible to just leave it at home. And I'm like, Like, I don't know what world you live in, but (laughs) that's never been a reality for me. No. And the truth is, even for those people who believe that they're leaving it at home, if you're repressing or shoving down your grief, it's going to come out sideways somehow. It doesn't just magically, you know, disappear forever. So um, and the consequences can be really harmful, of course, for the griever, but also for those, you know, around them, for sure. Mm-hmm. So when you look back about, when you think about loss in that the four years of hell, is that what you called it? The mm-hmm. four years of hell. Do you see, a, what? how would you name the various kinds of losses? Was it a loss of innocence, a loss of youth, a loss of normalcy, a loss of safety? How do you... Now, looking back, how do you kind of name and talk about the different ways loss was showing up? Uh, I love this because um, a short segue, I taught a course on the the grief cruise uh, two years ago, year and a half ago, called Honoring Secondary Loss. And it's kind of all the losses besides the death that we don't name that are abstract. And once I discovered that terminology, I was like, oh my God, not only did my mother die, but there was loss of stability, loss of home, both as a place and a feeling, loss of faith, loss of identity, loss of role in the family, loss of, and I don't exactly know how to phrase this one, but loss of sanity or protection from really deep and dark emotions. I had never felt so deeply before. Um, And there was almost a loss of not even a loss of control, because I think you control when you know that you have the emotions. But yeah. I discovered depths that I didn't even know that I had. And so, there, yeah, I guess a loss of innocence would be yeah. really pertinent there. Um, a loss of friend group, loss of a relationship. Um, I broke up with the person that I was dating shortly after my mother's death because neither she nor I could handle my grief. Um, loss of a path or a way, I think. Yeah. I knew exactly who I wanted to be and exactly what I wanted to do. And then I knew nothing all at once. Um, and I think probably the, the last thing I lost was hope for resolution in life. Mm. Uh, what I've had to do now, especially after my mom's death and my quest for finding acceptance from her is kind of like DIY. It's like, I have to manufacture it for myself or what I think it feels like instead of actually receiving it here on earth or in the physical world. Um, Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, I did an interview once with Rob Bell, the, the spiritual leader, and he said, ah, oh, so we're having many funerals. And I said, yeah. So when one person dies, we often have many funerals because more than the person who died is dying. Yeah. And that, that act of ritual, that act of funeral is so incredibly important for our healing journey, as you know, and I'd love to hear a little bit about sort of how you're enacting those things. And it, reminds me again the power and the importance of identifying and naming because you can't 
have a funeral. You can't have a ritual. You can't do that mourning work unless you name the loss in the first place. Yeah, you're right. And something that's been enormously helpful for me is knowing what it's not. I think sometimes grieving people are like, okay, I feel this intense pressure to put a word to an experience Mm -hmm. and they can't find the word. And I said, well, let's start with what it's not. Um, Is it anger? No, it's not really anger. Is it frustration? Not really. Is it sadness? Definitely not. Is it disappointment? Oh, we're getting closer. Somebody's let me down. There was a betrayal. I have been betrayed. And so it's like, we can kind of wind our way into getting to what the thing is that we need to name oftentimes by knowing what it's not. Um, And I love that you brought up ritual because yeah, again, it's kind of like we have to DIY or create our own rituals because society has, at least Westernized society has the picture of you do a funeral, there's a memorial service, maybe there's an advertisement or a notice in the newspaper, and then you're done. Yeah. And, and, and that's if you're memori- and that's if you're having a ritual over a death. Correct. Forget any other kind of loss. Forget right. it. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's it's wild to name the thing that was lost and then to invent a ritual for it when nothing else like that has previously existed in the world, at least publicly that you know of. And so I I give grieving people a lot of credit, including myself and including you too, and everyone who's listening, I give grieving people a lot of credit because we have to create a lot of things that aren't there. We have to produce a lot out of thin air. Um, Not only a lot out of thin air, we sometimes have to spend a lot of energy clearing out the debris that was in the way. I mean, to use that metaphor, you know, before Mm -hmm. we can even build and create our own ritual, it's like we have to unpack all the garbage that's been left behind by the cultural messages, by our family, et cetera. Yeah. Right. And kind of the structured way that I've learned to do this is uh, um, a reality that's come out in an online course that I teach called Life After Loss Academy. Um, And the first part of it, this happens in week four. So we do a couple of things before we get to this place, but to take an identity inventory. So you figure out who was the person that I used to be, how would I have described them? Um, the, The next week is about releasing the old self. And so you literally develop a memorial ritual for the person that you used to be and honor the fact that they can no longer live on because the loss happened. Um, the next part of that is, is something that I call embrace the new you. And, it's kind of figuring out, okay, so how would I describe myself now? And how can I learn to love the person that loss has forced me to live? I have had to become a different person. So how can I honor the fact that the old self got me up to this point? And how can the new self kind of take that past baton and continue on into the future? And this is really important to me because I think there's so much temptation to either sanctify the old self of like, I was perfect and now I'm broken. Or there's a temptation to villainize the old self. There's, I knew nothing and I was so innocent and then loss happened and now my eyes are opened. Yeah. Um, and so we either make a, a, a saint or an enemy of our old self. And I'm like, it's not really either. It's kind of both. And of we were a human person before loss happened and now we're a human person who knows what it means to lose. Yeah. Um, and, and this is something that I think has been really important to people who've taken the course, but, but just to who've worked with me in general and to me personally, because before my mom died, it never occurred to me that I had to grieve pieces of myself that no longer existed. I think we have lots of opportunities too, when we're growing up, like when you go through puberty, you'll never not be, uh, an adultified human. 
again. And so there's, there's parts of your body that you lose. There's rituals that you lose. There's rituals that you gain. Um, there's parts of your body that you gain. Um, and then there's like the way the world sees you, the world sees you one way before puberty and one way after, or even things like, um, moving from elementary to middle school or middle to high school. There's, there's these rituals of like, I'm saying goodbye to that old self, but they seem so much softer. Um, rituals probably because they're more societally acceptable um or like pre-programmed into the the system like this is how this goes um but yeah so I've I've worked really hard to continue to create rituals that are honoring of the person that I used to be and I still miss her and I have days where I'm like I still miss that person I used to be she was really cool um she didn't know you know a lot of what I know now but how could she have and so there's like some forgiveness of the old self too. It's like, how could you possibly have come with me through this loss? You didn't have the tools to, and now I've had to acquire them. Um, but there are days too when I when I just sit and miss her because mm-hmm. my life would look so totally different um, if she was allowed to, to continue on, if my mom's death had never happened. Absolutely. That's so beautiful. I really appreciate the way you talk about the sort of path that we can take when we're sort of coming to grips with our own losses sort of more internally than sort of the loss of somebody else and how we can bring a sense of self-compassion and wisdom and, and just the word and, Mm -hmm. you know, right. That, that there was beauty and hardship in who we were. There is beauty and hardship in who we are becoming, but to do that with intention is really important and to honor through kind of ritual and ceremony is equally important. And in some ways I would say, I wonder if this resonates for you or I'm curious is in some ways, that's how I think about the grief work we do when we're carrying the memory forward of someone who has died. When we're talking about grief over death, so many people want us to sort of sever that that a relationship is over and leave them behind. And in my mind, I think about the work that we're doing is, is honoring and grieving, of course, the, the relationship that, will not be in the same form as it was, you know, before the death. But we're also kind of carrying forward what is the new relationship we're having with that person? Because we're, when you're talking about somebody you've lost that's hugely impactful, they, their memory, their impact on your life carries forward. So how do you ritual and honor and bring that person forward, whether it's a practice or an object or a way of being in the world? Yeah. And I love that you brought this up because I actually was talking about it with a client yesterday. Um, So it's very timely. I was like, ah, this conversation is very fresh in my brain. Um, So I think there's, there's definitely an honoring of what was. And in my, in my mind, and this applies to my grief story may not resonate with yours, but in my mind, honoring what was for some reason needs to be more of a physical ritual, like a can't lighting a candle yes. or scattering rose petals down a river or something that's, that can be seen by your eyeballs. Um, because the person you have lost, you also saw with your eyeballs. Yeah. And so like, there's, there's something about watching the tangible slip away, watching the petals float away, watching the candle be blown out, um, burying the rocks in the dirt, kind of whatever ritual you have for continuing to release them. And you can do this over and over again. A ritual is not a one-time thing most right. of the time. Um, um, at least in my experience, I'm like, oh, I released this. And then it pops up again. I was like, oh, You're I like, need to release it again. Release it again. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You again. Yes. There's almost some humor in it. If like, I didn't think mm-hmm. I'd be doing this again. Um, and then in terms of 
building a new relationship, at least with my mother in, in life now, it's almost more of a spiritual or an emotional connection. So it doesn't seem so tangible. And it's almost like the conversations that I have with her in my head. So they're not necessarily always things I can see in my periphery, but they're how I continue to communicate with her after death. I mean, I'll do some tangible things like journal or um, I associate things like birds or finding pennies with her. And so every time I see those, I attribute them to my mother, which like it's your decision whether or not you choose to interpret signs as signs um, or not. But uh, one of the very best things I think grieving people can do to continue a relationship with a person that they lost is just to, to ask them in whatever format it feels appropriate for you. I just talked to my mom in my head sometimes. I was like, how, how would you like to show up? Or if you're here, let me know and yeah. do it. <laughs> I'm a little dense sometimes when it comes to signs. So I'm like, make it real obvious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I know that this is you and not somebody else or not a coincidence or, or things like that. And invariably, because I've asked the question, I will now be on the lookout. It, it kind of changes the way that I see the world. And so I'll see somebody at the grocery store who have the same haircut as her, or I'll find money on the ground, or I'll see birds, or a song will come on the radio that is not the station that I picked at all. Mm. Um, or seeing things like repeated numbers or, or things like that, or having one of my aunts, her sisters unexpectedly call um, is really neat. And, and again, it's all my autonomous choice about whether or not I want to see these things as messages from her. But at the end of the day, it kind of just comes down to, does this help me feel like I'm more fulfilled in my life and happier in my life? And the answer is yes. And so I'm like, why not? Why not just accept those things as the kinds of communications that we have right now? And then there are the really cool moments, um, fewer and farther between, where like, I'll have a visitation dream of her and I can actually feel her in the room yeah. or feel her talking to me or feel her hug, which is the thing I miss the most is like what my mom's arms felt like. I wrote a whole piece about my mom's arms for modern loss um, way back when, but to have those, I mean, maybe once or twice a year, it's just without a shadow of a doubt. It's like, then I know for sure without a shadow of a doubt that she's very present. So the other times I'm like, this could be me, could be her. Yeah. Um, but every now and then I'll, I'll get chills up my spine or I'll have a dream or something that's so unmistakably her energy that I'm forced to believe it. And I love it. I love when that happens. Oh, I love, you know, I've I've written about that before and people write to me and like, when am I going to have the dreams or, or, you know, missing those ways in which they feel deeply connected. I, you know, Dr. Joshua Black, who does grief dreams, I was mm -hmm. on the show, right. Talking about um, the few times where I've had those very vivid conversations, present sensation dreams about, um, you know, where I'm having a conversation with Eric and, and even in our dream, we're aware that he's dead and we don't care because we're together in the dream and having a conversation. And, those moments are, of course, the pinnacle maybe for people about, you know, still having their lost loved one in their life. But it doesn't take those kind of extraordinary moments to incorporate the relationship of somebody you've lost um, moving forward. Yeah, I think movies and, and TV and even books sometimes almost make it feel like if we're not receiving big grand messages all the time, then we're not receiving anything at all or what right. we're receiving isn't real. And I found that more and more, especially as I get older, the the signs and the symbols and the the things I receive, they're so tiny. They're so. like 0.2% of my day. Like they're not big, 
but they, they compound on themselves. You're talking about compounding grief. This is like compounding signs, <laughs> compounding communication um, with my person. And, and so gradually they've built into, it's almost like I have a dictionary of mom symbols and they all mean different things. Yeah. Um, but I've had to live without her for so long that like, uh, it, we have invented a new language together. Yeah. And the grand gestures are great. I'm always so grateful when they arrive. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. As you heard at the top of the show, it's my mission to change the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. Part of that work includes helping grievers start to understand that some of our suffering comes from the maladaptive strategies and harmful grief beliefs that permeate our culture so deeply, so deeply that they become embedded in our own thoughts and our own self-talk. I've intentionally created safe, supportive, and educational services to meet you where you're at, including individual sessions, group-guided meditations, workshops, and seminars, including one coming up later this month called Ditching the Shoulds of Grief, about understanding and finding ways to let go of all of those harmful beliefs that get in the way of our grief. I'd be honored to help you find meaningful and practical ways to incorporate space for your grief so that you can do the important, necessary, beautiful work of living more fully each day. You can learn more about these offerings and about why I do this work by visiting reimagininggrief.com. When we come back... As uncomfortable as we are generally with grief as a culture, we often have some level of acceptance and understanding of sadness and loneliness. What we have zero patience or comprehension about is that anger is a very real and valid part of grief. As you heard Shelby share earlier, she noted that it was very present for her and the fact that no one acknowledges it as a normal part of grief was really problematic. So I asked Shelby to explore how she came to know and name her anger. I asked her to unpack how much of that anger was over her mother not accepting her identity as a queer woman, and how she has come to process her anger over the years. Well, um, one of the, I'll go back to the course I teach called Life After Loss Academy. We spend a whole week on anger and disappointment. Um, because I think oftentimes the two go hand in hand, because when I think about anger, the story I tell myself, well, I have a couple stories. It's, I have been abandoned. I've been left alone here. I am powerless. This wasn't fair. And I've been ripped off. Um, and so if, if you can kind of get to, okay, I'm angry about this, but why, um, what's the story that's underneath this? You can often kind of trace it back to, okay, this is how it showed up in my grief. Um, so there, there was the anger certainly, and this was the first anger that came up of like, holy shit, my mom didn't accept my sexuality. Now she's dead. So it will never happen. I'm so mad at her for being so Christian. I'm so mad at me for not trying to push the envelope harder. I'm so mad that we didn't have more time. I hate cancer. I hate God. I hate everything. Um, and so that was kind of the roots of a lot of it. Um, but then there's also too, like the, the anger of losing her so young. I was 21 years old, the anger of, um, her not being able to see uh, a proper Christmas day. She died the day after Christmas, but was not really cognizant for a lot of it. And that was um, 
her favorite holiday, uh, the anger of knowing that her death was continuing a legacy. Her mom died when she was 22 years old. And so her mother missed her own life milestones. And she knew in dying that she would miss ours as Mm -hmm. my sister and mine. Um, There's the anger of my entire life being forced to change against my will because of her death, watching my father become a different person as somebody who lost a wife, watching my sister become a different person, my relationships with my friends, family, and partner changed as a result. Um, Oh my word, it was just like everything was overhauled overnight. And so there was this great, I read this quote somewhere and God help me, I don't know who said it, um, but anger is a response to injustice. And the addendum that I like to add is that um, the injustice doesn't have to be rational. Because I think so often yes. we try and convince ourselves that like, I got to be angry about something that's logical. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> we are allowed to have so much rage about things, even if they're not, um, even if everybody's not getting the same slice of cake. Like it's, you are allowed to be so angry at things that aren't fair, even if they're only fair for your life, or even if somebody else has it worse, or even if you have so many other things to be grateful for. Like those things don't, cancel out anger. They're just other facts of your life. Um, And so now my relationship to anger is one um, where I actually kind of really love it and really embrace it partially because I know if I allow it to appear, it changes into something different. Like anger is a a short-lived kind of emotion. I think people who are perpetually angry have, have rarely had moments where they can wholly express it. So people who have this low rage cynicism or low rage, um, like bitterness or kind of a humming resentment all the time. I was like, oh, you've never been allowed to be really angry and just have it. So you kind of have it in small doses, like 10% anger all the time. Um, But for me, I go to like zero to a hundred and then back down to like eh, 20. Um, Knowing that, okay, the, the purpose of anger is not to sit here and for me to try to suppress the thing or to quiet the beast. It's to allow the beast to appear, to rage about the thing, allow it to leave my body um, or leave my experience and then sit with what happens after. Yeah. And And, learn from it. I mean, as I think we do all of our emotions, if when mm -hmm. we welcome them in, right, listen to what they have to say, because as you said, there's something beneath the anger. Right. And this is um, how I ended up writing my first book, Permission to Grieve, is uh, I got my wallet stolen in downtown Chicago. And I was so angry about the fact that someone had ripped me off. I felt powerless. I felt hopeless. I felt like I couldn't trust the world. I mean, all these same stories that came up when my mom died. And I went home with the one card that I have left, which was my bus pass. And I slammed the door and I dropped to my knees on the floor. Like this was all without thinking, because normally I would have suppressed this, but I was just so mad. I couldn't do it anymore. And it was the moment where the floodgates just came open and I was pounding the floor and I was listening to screamo music. And I was just yelling at the ceiling and at God and the world and the stupid person who stole my wallet. Um, And it only lasted for about 20 minutes or a half hour or so. And I was laying on the floor after it was over because I was tired. Um, And I heard this voice in my head that said, you just gave yourself permission to grieve. And I was like, what is that? That's amazing. And and to have had that experience and to let all of that out, because that was the first time I really grieved in the two and a half years since my mom died. It was the first time I let everything out of my body Mm. and the trigger the catalyst was my wallet being stolen, um, to give myself permission to grieve in that way. And to see that I was okay. Like I was physically, mentally, emotionally intact 
after it happened, I didn't die. I didn't break. I didn't get committed to a mental institution like these horror movies you see from the 40s and 50s of people being dragged away in straight uh, jackets. Um, I was like, none of that happened. I'm still here. I'm still standing. And I think that was the day I became uh, no longer afraid of anger. I was like, oh, you're a friend. You tell me something about myself. You tell me yeah. when... Um, when I have stories that are harming me or other people, or I feel like I've been taken advantage of, or I feel like I can't trust anybody or I feel alone. Um, and what's interesting and funny is that when I, I laughed in my head, when you said, uh, and learn from anger, because when you try and learn from anger while you're still suppressing anger, it seems like a really shit thing to do. Like yeah. it seems pointless. It seems annoying. It seems, um, it seems stupid to try yeah. and learn from anger while you're still angry. But then when you are allowed to have the anger, to hold the anger, to say, I'm pissed about this. This wasn't fair. This is an injustice. I can't believe that happened. I should have had, I could have had, I wanted more of this. Um, you, you get to see not only more about yourself as an emotional person. Like you learn about that bandwidth that I didn't even know that I had before my mom yeah. died. I was like, oh, I can go off the rails and still really be a, a, a human standing person 20 minutes later. Um, but you also learn so much more about yourself and what you want and the things that you're missing. And it helps you put words to the experience, what we were talking about earlier, yeah. when you allow yourself to be angry. Um, and so now it's one of my very, very dear friends. And it's so funny working with students in Life After Loss Academy, because I find that my cohort always goes one of two directions. Either students uh, love anger and are so ready for week eight and they just want to dive in and talk about their anger or they're so anger avoidant, whether because of religion or the household that they were raised in and anger is not allowed. It should be kept quiet. It's very rude. People see it as violent. And so it's interesting how many different stories people have about how anger is allowed, where it's supposed to show up, where it lives in the body, what you're supposed to do with it. Yeah. A fascinating topic. Maybe I'll write a book about just anger and grief one day because there's so much to say about the purpose of, I think it's a, a holy kind of rage when we get to be angry about grief. Absolutely. Because to your point about anger being sort of injustice and disappointment, I think in some ways it's about ways in which we weren't seen and held and validated. And so then when you suppress anger, it's like you are invalidating anger. You know, you're sort of doing that same thing to anger. And so to welcome anger in is really an opportunity to um, allow it to be seen and held and learn from it. Yeah. Yeah. And a phrase that I learned recently from the Instagrammer Maya Richardson is self-gaslighting. And something that we do in grief, because gaslighting is when somebody uh, tells you stories about your emotional state or um, what's gone Intention. on in your life to, exactly, um, to force you to, um, to contradict yourself or feel like maybe you have the wrong story. It causes a distrust of the self. Yeah. Um, but there's such a thing too as self-gaslighting where we try to talk ourselves out of our own emotions. And so we yeah. feel like we can't trust what's coming up for us. Like other people have it so much worse, so I'm not allowed to grieve or I'm only allowed to grieve if it meets this criteria or um, other people's brains don't act like this. So I'm not allowed to act like this as if, as if somehow you have all of that information and it's true. And so you gaslight yourself into not trusting the emotions that are coming up, which feeds into that suppressing of anger. And when we suppress anger, we suppress the self. That's a really wise insight that you had. Yeah. 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 Well, and I call that the shooting, you know, like we should all over ourselves oh, and that's yes. what you're doing. <laughs> You know, and it's, but I love, I love, um, who was the person who said that? Her name is Maya Richardson. Maya Richardson. I love that because that a very idea, it's like we take, we, we sort of um, 
have these internal messages that we're saying to ourselves that we either created or more likely than not, we learned or heard, you know, in the, in the family and the, in the culture and the world. And we then should, I shouldn't feel sad. Somebody else has had it worse. I should be better because somebody else has already returned to work. You know, it's the should and the shouldn't. And then that just interrupts our ability to actually just hold space and process for whatever we're feeling. It doesn't have to be, as you said, rational, it doesn't have to be better or worse. Also, we have this weird thing where we have to compare, you know, right. our grave to others. And that shooting that we do all of ourselves is the, is the harm that happens on top of just the hard work of grief. So sometimes when I hear clients kind of shooting all over themselves, I'm like, yeah. stop, 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 stop. I was like, okay, I hear you. And I yeah. see exactly what's happening right now. I have two questions for you. What do you really want to do? And what's stopping you? Yeah. And it kind of puts a, a boulder in this road, this rut that we dig in our brains that we go in circles about. It's like, let's put a boulder in the road and see if we can't redirect some of this energy. What do you really want to do? It's like, yeah. well, I want to write an angry letter to my dad who's died. It's like, okay, we can do that. What's stopping you? Well, I feel like it's kind of pointless or it's stupid or I'm not going to send it and he can't even read it. So what's the point? And, or something like that. Yeah. Or um, what do you really want to do? Well, I want to go out sailing on a boat with my friends to honor a loved one. What's stopping you? Oh, they'll think it, I'm crazy or I've hung on to this grief for too long because it's been 10 years. And then we can work on ways to, okay, how can we make this a reality by removing all of these, these ways that we try and stop ourselves? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hugely important. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I, mm -hmm. I really do appreciate you bringing forward the conversation around um, anger as a really important part of our of the spectrum of grief and the emotions and the feelings um, that's part of the work of grief, because I think we um, dismiss it really too often to our own detriment mm -hmm. and to the detriment of others, because not only are we not good at holding space for our own anger, we're definitely not good at holding space for other people's anger. And so then we pathologize often um, other yes. people's anger. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is we think we're doing the work of suppressing anger but like you said previously, it'll come out somewhere else. It's very much like the whole experience of grief. Whether we are subtly angry at the people we love, which I think is what people think stereotypically, is like if I'm suppressing anger, it's going to come out at tiny ways in other people. But yeah. we can also direct that anger inwards and, Absolutely. and find ourselves unable to trust people again or unable to, to commit to anything because we're afraid it's going to end because we're angry about that or for fear of abandonment. Yeah, there's a lot of um, different ways that anger shuts pieces of ourselves down. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we close today, just wanting to sort of open the, open the floor, as it were, for you to say, if, if you had to um, go back to your 21-year-old Shelby self and sort of offer some, like, one wisdom you've learned along the way, either, either from the own, your own work that you've done for yourself on your grief or, or what you've been able to bear witness to as you've worked with others in their grief, what, what might you say? What might that internal soft, kind message be to the 21-year-old Shelby? Well, I get this image. I love that you asked this question because I get this image of... <laughs> my old self, this is actually both funny and heartbreaking at the same time, but like sitting in a chair in a dark room with one light overhead, uh, roped to a chair, her arms behind her back and, and gagged. Um, 
and just held prisoner, not only, not really by the experience of grief. I think people think that it's grief that's holding them hostage. But for me, it was all the restrictions I had about how I was allowed to grieve. And so I get this image of, of walking into the room with a knife or a sharp shell or something and sawing these ropes away and saying, you are so much freer to grieve than you think you are. You have full permission to have this experience and removing that gag from the mouth of like, scream, cry, do what you want. You are, you are allowed to free yourself from these tight constraints or these boxes that you think you're supposed to fit in right now. You are so much freer than you think. And it's almost like, um, like my current self is granting permission to my past self to have that grief. And that's a lot of what um, fed the writing of Permission to Grieve, which was my first book. But this idea that hmm, we feel as if we have permission to do so many other things in our lives and we don't even question it. Of course, we're allowed to get in the car and drive to the grocery store. Of course, we're allowed to attend a baby shower. Of course, um, we're allowed to send our kids off to school. But to have the emotional experience of grief, it's like, no, you don't have permission to do that. Yeah. Um, and I always wondered, I was like, why? And that's what that whole book is about. But if I could, I would go back and, and energetically free her from that belief that she is not allowed to have the experience that she's having. That is absolutely beautiful. What an incredible way to end our conversation today and to remind our listeners that you have the permission to grieve and find the spaces and places and resources you need to feel supported in doing just that. Shelby, thank you so, so much for joining me today. What a beautiful conversation. I'm really grateful for this time together with you. Thank you so much. Well, my friends, we've come to close on another authentic, insightful, and meaningful conversation on this show. I so appreciate Shelby's candor and insight. I imagine you do too. You can learn more about Shelby by visiting shelbyforsythia.com. I will include a link in the show notes for today's episode. I want to thank Gile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music once again for today's show. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.